You know the way everybody's into weirdness right now? Books in all the supermarkets about Bermuda Triangles, UFOs, how the Mayans invented television, that kind of thing. I don't read them books. Well, the way I see it, it's exactly the same. There ain't no difference between a flying saucer and a time machine. People get so hung up on specifics, they miss out on seeing the whole thing. Take South America, for example. In South America, thousands of people go missing every year. Nobody knows where they go. They just like disappear. But if you think about it for a minute, you realize something. There had to be a time when there was no people, right? Yeah, I guess. Well, where did all these people come from? Hmm? I'll tell you where. The future. Where did all these people disappear to? Hmm? The past. That's right. And how'd they get there? How the fuck do I know? Flying saucers, which are really, yeah, you got it, time machines. I think a lot about this kind of stuff. I do my best thinking on the bus. That's how come I don't drive, see? You don't even know how to drive. I don't want to know how. I don't want to learn, see? The more you drive, the less intelligent you are. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. I'm not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts 
about Radio Mysterioso. Jesus, that thing is just way too long. I think Paul Smith was right when I talked to him. It gives you a chance to go to sleep or something for a while, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry, what, man? Let's uh, take a little nap then. Mr. Di- Dr. Michael, please wake up. Uh, I'm back. All I'm right. back. Uh, should I read an introduction or should I? I don't think I should read it because you've been on before. I have, but 2019. You've got all these new listeners who probably don't know who I am. Um, you know where I stole your bio off of? The Coast to Coast site. <laughs> oh, nice. That's my most recent one. So yeah. It looks like you wrote it, too. I did. Yeah, they always make you write those. Um, yeah, when I was working there, I had a shorter version of it. You could just read the short one. The I think so. Version. Yeah, it says... Uh, on one of their sites, one of their pages, they had a like a two-sentence one. Oh, I don't, I don't know if the, this is a two-sentence one. It's probably the long one. George read the long one, too. Okay. I'll try and read it in George Norivor's voice. How does he talk? <laughs> Dr. Michael Masters is a professor of biological anthropology in Mon- Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. He received a Ph.D. in anthropology from the Ohio State University in 2009. His current research program centers on hominin evolutionary anatomy, human variation, archaeology, and biomedicine. Spot on, dude. In 2019, he published Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon, which examines the premise that UFOs and aliens may be from our human, may be our human descendants. I thought reading into the George Norrie voice, I wouldn't make a mistake. Returning from the- He didn't, dude. He killed it the other day. No, no, he's- That's what he does. People usually kind of stumble around on that part, but you could tell he- Looked through the the verbiage ahead of time. Yeah. Returning from the future to visit and study their own hominin evolutionary past. His second book, The Extratempestrial Model, published in June 2022, analyzes well-documented cases of abduction and other contact modalities in the context of this time travel model. And other theories that put forth and other theories put forth to elucidate this complex and mysterious phenomenon. Welcome, Mr. Dr. Michael Masters. (laughs) George wins He does George wins that George off I do have friends well, at, least, at least you got practice now For the the real The real go you can, you can also shorten that down I mean that's the formal The formal introduction But yeah you're right I don't think you need to read all of that Well I already did I think we will probably go over a couple things we went over for from before, just because you know we need to kind of lower people into the hot water um, slowly. Um, <clears throat> okay. I mean, I just assumed everybody that listens to your show has read my first book three times, but they should have. Okay. Well, then I, I don't have to ask you. I don't have to ask you about what, what got you into this. Uh, although at the beginning of this new book in uh, Extratempestrial Model. Um, you said that one of the reasons that you were bored by the banality of reality, which <laughs> was a great <laughs> phrase. <laughs> yeah, I liked writing that too. I I make myself chuckle sometimes, not not that often. I'm not a raging narcissist or anything, but every now and then phrases like that that come out, I'm like, yeah, I like that one, and it <laughs> it encapsulates it so well. I mean, yeah, 
you know, obviously there was a spark with like hearing about my biological father's UFO encounter and then seeing Whitley right. Strieber's book on the shelf. But yeah. really at the root of it is just how easily bored I am by the banality of reality. It's just, you know, oh, are we talking about the weather again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you see that episode of MASH last night? Like, come on. Let's talk about some weird shit. Yeah, that's the first thing I think of, too. And it, ever since I got out of a normal job, I haven't had to engage in those conversations too much, except with, like, mm. you know, friends, parents and stuff like that. Yeah, Although when they has to happen. Yeah, when they find out what you're into, the conversation changes immediately. Because privately, everybody's interested. True. Or at least most well, people. no. Most interesting people yes. are interested. There's yes. a lot of people that put up walls and roadblocks to those sorts of, not just conversations, but thought patterns and belief systems. Yeah. Uh, and those aren't people you'd want to talk to anyway. So, yeah, no. you have a plate conversation. Well, they're you move on to the next person. Right. How's this book doing? I mean, the, it, oh, here's a good question. How many sales of the book did you get out of um, uh, being on Coast to Coast? I I don't know, dude. I I've literally never checked my book sales. Oh, okay. I looked at first. I, I mean, it's it's important, sure, and I I get some sense of it. Uh, but I don't. I've never checked because, and I decided this early on. To be honest, I was like, I'm not doing this to sell books. It's great that they do sell. No, no, uh, I, you know, you won't, but it's just kind of like, well, I'd like to know. But it, it, if you don't want to know, I totally understand. That. I don't want to know because I feel like that'll detract from why I'm doing it. Mm, makes and, total and sense. And if I quantify it, then it'll be like, well, how did I do last month or what do I have to do? And that's not, that was never the intention and it never will be. It's about trying to get this idea out in a way that makes sense, that is explained in a way that makes sense. And, mm. uh, you know, the idea has been around as far as I could trace it back since the forties. And that was the, the first chapter in this most recent book is trying to identify as many people yeah. as I could who had this idea and try to get it out there in some capacity. And I, obviously I've missed people and I've become aware of that, even though the book's only been out for a month of yeah, like people four or tell five you people I missed. or that. Yeah. Um, but, but that was, that's my main motivation. That's the impetus for this is cause I think it should be considered. I'm not going to say it's right. I'm just going to say it's a valid theory that should be considered. And I think there's a lot of reasons why it should be considered. And that's what I tried to put out in these two books. But I, I, well, that comes through see. the, the, the non dogmat dogmatic nature of it does come through very I hope clearly because so, I'm, I'm not. And as a scientist, we shouldn't be dogmatic. And I grew up perhaps I'm fortunate that I grew up in the subfield of paleoanthropology where it's rampant dogmatism and people have huge biases and many, many different esoteric capacities. But no, I, I've been trying to look past that and just say, hey, let's talk about this. And it's been great that the idea has been getting traction, not just because of my work, but a lot of others as well, because I think it is important. And, and for me, that is the reward. The, the book sales indicate that that's happening, but I don't really care, to be honest. It's mm, okay. not 
it's not the main focus. I don't I don't keep tabs on it. I don't crunch numbers. I don't even look well, at the statistics. I never have either, but I would do that after shows, at least at the beginning, just to see if the show had any effect. Yeah, I did do that early on because you you need a sense of what's worth your time. Yeah. Absolutely. And you don't want to waste your time on things that don't reach people, not yeah. even about book sales. And, and you're right, the book sales are a metric of that, but... Um, but there's others too, like how many emails you get from people afterward, how insightful the emails are. That's the other one. You kind of get a sense of the audience too. And if you got the message out, yeah, they'll, they'll ask you questions. If the message was received as a professor, that's a very important thing. Was the message received? Did Mm -hmm. I explain it well to this audience Mm -hmm. in this moment? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, is that is that what you're finding with the well the first one too because I think that was pretty well received by the UFO crowd and pro- perhaps even some of the science crowd. Um, um, science crowd, yes. UFO crowd, no. Really? No, not at all. Well, the problem was I I went straight to MUFON. Uh oh. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I I my very first talk. I actually. I don't hate them. I just think they're dogmatic, and it's they don't. Yeah, that's they don't. What I they learned. don't evolve their thinking. They haven't done it in that's a long time. That's what I learned, Greg. Yeah. And it's funny. Just recently, just this week. Um, I mean, the I organization doesn't. Some of the members do. Right. Right. Exactly. And and we. It's not even stereotyping. It's just this organization draws this type of people who happen to be older white men who don't really change their way of thinking mm-hmm. and aren't willing to challenge that way of thinking. But what's interesting is my very first talk was in a little church in Portland, Oregon. Hmm. And there was, I was in a conversation all of a sudden this, this dude chimes in like, Oh yeah, I, I still have a glow in the dark cup and a, a koozie from Dr. Masters talk. It said little church in Portland. <laughs> And then he goes on to add, and it really wasn't very good. He didn't know anything back then, and I was a little disappointed. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I am a staunch uh, disciple of yours, the do not engage mentality. But and and it was a backhanded. No, no. Do not implement. engage with with dumb people that waste with your trolls. time. Yeah. yeah, and but he was right too, and I was like, yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, that was my very first talk. I didn't know jack all about the UFO community. Didn't know jack all about MUFON. Yeah, uh, and I and I ended it with yeah, I learned a lot from that one. And it, I don't give that same talk anymore. It was way too esoteric. It was way too scientific i i needed that to know how to talk to my audience yeah um but it wasn't just that with the ufo community it was it was a disruptive thing you know there's a lot of dogma even beyond move on yes oh no a lot of of people wanted it to be extraterrestrials and maybe it still is i don't know but i was really surprised how few wanted to talk about something different and and I feel like that's changed. Now there's way more open-mindedness, it seems, not just to this idea, but others that make yeah, sense as because well. because more and people really have joined up. In the last five years, a lot more people have become interested be- for obvious reasons. Yeah. We're not just talking to move on anymore. But I, I did, like, two months after that, I was invited by Jan Harzan, whose name we should still say and acknowledge as crimes, uh, <laughs> yeah. to... To give a talk at their 50th anniversary symposium down in Irvine, which I did, even worse reaction. Like, so oh. in this panel, some dude rips the mic out of my hand and like goes on to tell me how Michio Kaku said time travel is not possible, 
moves the microphone as far away from me as he possibly can, so I can't even respond. Then I'm just like trying to shut me down. I was like, oh, hell no. So I like reach across. I'm like almost (laughs) elbow him in the face, get the mic back, say my piece. And I'm like, if we're going to have a a debate, we're going to have a debate. You don't just get to shut me down because I'm new here. Yeah, of course not. But yeah, I didn't make a lot of friends at that place. I actually did. I met some really cool people. But yeah, well, um, there are people that have come up to you after that really after that really do want to know about this stuff and do want to talk about it. I gave a talk at MUFON in Orange County, run by the same people. I even think Harzan was there. Actually, this was like I don't know six or seven years ago, and I talked about um, the co-creation hypothesis. The people that in the in the um the organizers they gave me such a load of 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 crap after it about you know mm-hmm. how that didn't make any sense and it doesn't you know it's it's not it's not a viable theory and why are you talking about this and the audience the people that were there the people that were there that were members we went out to dinner later and they all understood what i said yeah you got through to them. Yeah. And they wanted more. They they were there for something more, and you gave it to them. If it would have just been the same old crap, they probably would have been disappointed. So yeah. that's good. I actually, from that um, <laughs> from that same panel session at that 50th anniversary symposium, I still have it uh, sitting next to my desk. This really nice woman in the front row wrote on the Hotel Irvine notepad, uh, how much she enjoyed my talk. It was her favorite one of, it was like a words of encouragement. Cause she saw what happened. Everybody saw what happened. This dude's just trying to shut me down. Yeah. And, but she was at my talk and was like, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like, like words of encouragement, a little go get them tiger. No, yeah. you know, Perfect. she came up and gave it to me, folded up afterwards. And I still have that hanging there, <clears throat> but it, this I've is gotten those good... two. They're very nice. They're very nice. It's the thing that keeps you going in all of this. I, I've gotten quite a few of those in the last couple of days from that coast to coast oh, excellent. conversation too. But then I went, I was like, oh, this is going to be a rough ride. Jesus Christ. You know, my first two talks, I'm just getting beat down, legs cut out from the knees. And then I went to the International UFO Congress in Phoenix. Were we? And man? it was completely different. Like everybody's open-minded and happy and just like yeah. wanting to have a conversation. It's it was completely different. And and I'm I'm going back there. Karen invited me back to give a talk in October. I oh, think good. it's October twelfth through sixteenth. And yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's like a safe space where you can yeah. really talk about things without all of the racist white move on people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I I feel the same way about the um about that conference. And then people complain it's like, well how can you be on the same stage with so and so or so it's like I'm not. They're presenting their thing and I'm presenting my thing and I don't yeah. see how they're they're it's not what did I what did I say to them? It's a it's a variety show, not a chorus line. Oh, I like that. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> variety show. And MUFON is important. It was important. It it still is. You know, they they put it out there. They've been doing it for a while. Um, but I, I do think they need a serious restructuring of their organization. Yeah, definitely. It's, and it, who I've am I to say? I've thought that for you know, a while. I, I've been invited from, to join twice now in the last couple of years, and I kind of said, I'll think about it. 
Well, I joined a couple weeks ago because I wanted access to their database. Do you have uh, that? No. No. Yeah, exactly. You don't get that, as it turns yep. out. And so I paid them like 15 bucks or whatever because I've been invited to collaborate on this really interesting project, or at least it sounds interesting. And, um, so I was going to do just a basic content analysis. And I, I've got other databases, like, like was it the KUFOS? Yeah. Am I, yeah. The, what's that stand for? Center for UFO Studies, Hynix Group. Yeah, no, that's not it. It's the other one, like Peter Davenport, maybe. Oh, yeah, that's a UFO, National UFO Reporting Center. Yeah, New Fork, that one. Yeah. So, and and they have a, an awesome database, too. Um, but I wanted to combine them and then have, like, this epic content analysis database at, at my disposal. And and I even emailed them, like, look, I paid all this money. I mean, $15 is a lot of money, but yeah. I should have gotten access to the database. And every time I went to click on it, it just took me back to the same page never even got an email back i don't think they use the internet to be honest i might be able to find out a way to get you access to that let me let me remember to do that greg you do that for me of course i would because uh, i want to see what you come up with <laughs> i mean i've got some ideas there's been a couple times i tried to dip in for some it's 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 hard it's an uphill battle but um <clears throat> Yeah, no. Let, so you're doing know. you're sure. doing a a, a um, project with Pilot. MUFON? A, a what? No, not with MUFON. Oh, uh, with some engineers actually. It's kind of uh, I I can't talk about it too much, and I don't mean okay. that as like a, no. I understand hey, you. You can't NDA talk about stuff while you're working on it. So secretive, but just um, I I can't really say what the focus is, but it's I do okay. think that a content analysis to at least see what we should focus on would be very helpful. All right. Let, let me, let me see if I can, uh, I know a couple people still in MUFON that I get along very well with who do have access to that. So let me see what they say. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Appreciate it. At least I think they do as far as I know from what they talk about. Yeah. And I, I don't get it, you know, like what's the point of collecting the data and they do have some awesome field investigators. I'm not, yes. when I talk trash about the organization, the Oh no, no, no. I, I'm not talking trash about the field investigators. Those people are dedicated. Yeah. They do so much work. They offer their time. Yeah, the rank and file are are very dedicated and also quite a bit more open-minded than you think they would be. Absolutely, yeah. No, I've I've gotten to be good friends with quite a number of them, and they're fantastic people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I just, I don't know. I've had a couple bad experiences, and I'm not the only one. (laughs) No, I'm I'm one of them, too. Other people have... um, uh, some people have got had such bad experiences. They've they're all they do is try and bring Mufon down, which is kind of a waste of time, to, uh, I think. But it's just it's it's uh, that's a good one. What's that? That's a coon squalor, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I also don't like talking trash about people, and I just realized we were doing that a lot. So <laughs> okay, well, well, okay, we'll stop talking squalor, trash so. about MUFONs. I the beginning of the book, in the first or second, I think it's in the second chapter. Maybe it's the first. You immediately start in with what is bad about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Not bad, but what casts I, serious doubt on it. Oh, well, yeah, what casts doubt? I wouldn't even say serious doubt. 
Well, I say serious because I've just been so sick of it for so long. And I it's still on the table, but to me, it's probably one of the least likely. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that comes through in your title sequence, too. There's definitely some doubts cast in the, the clips you chose to open your show, as there should be, because there are issues with it. And yeah. but I it think... doesn't mean it's being thrown out the door. It's just it's just no. it hasn't no. it hasn't brought too much fruit, you see. Yeah, and, and honestly, like the first when when I reach people for the first time with this idea, those who haven't been exposed to it before, because again, it's not my idea. Um, that's usually the first thing they say is UFOs seem like they're real. I believe what these people are saying who have had abductee and contactee experiences, but something just doesn't check out with this idea that, and then they list all of the same things that I've been arguing as well. There's many, many things that would seem to indicate that there's a better explanation out there somewhere. And and that's what I was trying to do in this most recent book is, uh, yeah, sort of take an abductive approach to the question, inference to the best explanation, if you will, mm-hmm. but also consider these cases and other cases in the context of the ultra-terrestrial, extraterrestrial, crypto-terrestrial simulation, the, these other models that have been put forth as right. well. And, and I think that's important because we should keep everything on the table. Nobody has the answers. Yeah, it's not going to be answered can, by one. It's probably going to be a. Con- it's probably going to be a, a couple different things. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be all of them. I think we can definitely weed some out. And it was cool that Hal Putoff put out that paper, too. And he was basically saying the same thing. Like, let's the crypto let's paper. try to just. It'd be, yeah, he called it ultra terrestrials. Right, was basically right. the crypto. Yeah, uh, which I I don't agree with. I don't agree with. That interpretation, for some reasons we could talk about if you want, but he's right in the methodology that we need to start checking things off the list, crossing them off Mm -hmm. the list. Checking them implies that we're keeping them around, but crossing them off off the list, and we're we're still not capable of doing that uh, with sound scientific data, of course, but with logic, with looking at different aspects of the phenomenon, with what people are doing, with sensors, both physical and others, I think we can start to eliminate some things or at least put them lower on the totem pole where, like like Hal says, we can sort of have this group at the top that are viable theories. So mm-hmm. let's whittle it down to those. Let's let's get rid of some of them and have some others that, that could still be on the table. Yeah, like the extra tempestrial hypothesis. What do I you... mean, he mentioned it, but yeah. I, I I do think it should be considered. <clears throat> well, I think it's I think it should be considered. I think it's viable, and I think the argument you arguments you've presented in you know the first book and now the second one are pretty compelling. That it's not something that's the bottom of the totem pole. I'd put it you know I, for me, I'd put it up near the top because it's compelling. What do I'd you put mean? it around the chin? Okay. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I mean, there's still like a not eye level, not eyes, scalp, forehead, maybe. and yeah. hair. But I, well, you know, I think the hair might be consciousness. Uh-huh. I do think that permeates all of this in some capacity. Yes. I still don't know what the eyes, nose, and mouth are, but I feel like there's something in between that's also happening. Uh, but I, I do, I do feel like it's. Maybe not human consciousness, some all-pervasive consciousness that we experience, and are 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 one of few animals that can 
experience it and self-reflect on it and try to introspectively describe what it is, which is very challenging. Yeah. Uh, looking from the inside out. But yeah, I think, I think consciousness is key. Uh, I just don't think it explains the physical aspects. There's definitely something happening there. Yeah. And, and those do seem to be rooted in the extension of our past technology and physiological form. How do you mean when you say that? I mean, if we, if we look at the past evolution of hominins, e even life on this planet, tetrapods and mm -hmm. uh, all of the various life forms, there, there is an unbroken thread. It's why, we, uh, it's why all living things on this planet share DNA as our coding system because we all evolved from those same basic life forms that started to reproduce some 3.7 billion years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and if we continue that forward, but also our culture, since we began to make and use stone tools about 3 to 3.3 million years ago, uh, everything we have today, our computers, our cars, any tool that we have is the direct descendant of those first stone tools, mm -hmm. those first preservable stone tools. We were like losing sticks and, and leaves and other things as tools too, but those don't preserve. Uh, if those continue it could very well culminate in the same things we see coming back through time in the form of morphologically speaking, the humans and human noid types and culturally speaking, the technological craft that they use to physically travel into the past. Um, but I think deep enough into the future, we probably evolve into some weird pulsating orb of consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> all pervasive uh all pervasive. Non, non i think it's light i think it's light i, I really think consciousness is light and light is consciousness mm -hmm. that's why people see lights that's the that's the um it's something that people see when they have an anomalous experience there's always light there's always a light coming from somewhere yeah near-death experiences uh psychedelic experiences and we have all of these different phrases too like enlightenment or or in the beginning there was light it's even an aspect of genesis like the, mm -hmm. the biblical teachings which may or may not have been inspired by this all-pervasive consciousness that exists in the deep future well i i think it does and it, it's it almost sounds like um um terence mckenna's uh the something object at the end of time oh i wish you could remember the something because i like where that's going yeah, I mean, even without the something, it's still intriguing. I think it's the transcendent object at the end of time, something like oh, that. Oh, even better. Yeah. You know what? It's a conversational show, so I'm just going to Google it while we're conversating. Yeah, please do. Find out exactly what uh, Saint, Saint, uh, Saint Terence said. I know three people that can... Sir, Sir Saint Terence McKenna. Yeah, I know three people that can do Terence McKenna impersonations. And at some point, I really want to have them on the show and just all talk to each other in Terence McKenna. Voices. Dude, I think you were Googling it as you were talking about it. That's exactly right. Oh, okay. The transcendental object at transcendental, the end of yeah. time. That's so poetic, too. Yeah. It's beautiful. Well, he was a poetic person, and he expressed things, you know... It, I think he was actually more poetic than Timothy Leary, who is basically his yeah, kind of spiritual ancestor. Um, yeah, yeah. I think he, he made things more relatable, too. Like, Timothy Leary had the vibe, mm -hmm. and he had the energy, but he wasn't... At the same time, I find 
Look at us getting all philosophical. That's um, fine. I find that Terrence McKenna could also be overly poetic. Yeah, to the point would, where you start to... But you don't understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the whole point of communication is to communicate something that can be understood. And and I feel like, you know, I'm not an idiot. Like, I know stuff. I don't know the same stuff. But that doesn't matter, and it shouldn't matter. No. Is he should be able to communicate something to everybody and I will listen to some of his interviews, especially ones with like philosophers and shit. And I'm like, what the fuck is he talking yeah. about? I just don't get it. And and it could be partly my failing. I didn't read the right books. I didn't study the right people. But it, I don't know. It, it seems like, and he's probably talking to an audience that's much smaller and more esoteric. But yeah. I wanted to know what he said. I wanted to understand. And I couldn't. I felt left out. Like I'm trying to climb the... The ladder of the treehouse, and I just he keeps throwing rotten fruit at me. (laughs) (laughs) There is a really good clip of him interviewing John Mack that you can find on on YouTube. And I'd love to see that. And Mack, both him and John Mack make incredibly great um, statements about the UFO thing and the alien thing and abductions. Wait, wait, wait. Was that when they were John Mack was leaning back on a table? Yes. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That was an awesome. It seemed like an almost impromptu conversation. Yeah, that somebody happened like to record. What, what was it? Looked like McKenna was running around with a uh, a microphone and a tape recorder, or yeah. at least a microphone and a video, and, and obviously a film crew too. Or at yeah. least they were there for something. Yeah, it was like it seemed like a conference that let out for lunch. Yeah, and they just happened to be there. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, that was awesome. That was a great conversation. I never, I never got to meet McKenna. I did meet Leary f- three times. Um, very gentlemanly, incredibly nice person every time. McKenna. I mean, everybody I, is when they're on acid, right? <laughs> you guys, you guys were tripping balls, right? God, I wish we were. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll start that uh, rumor. But yeah, once was at a book signing. Once was at. Um, and two were, were conferences, one that I was speaking at and one that I wasn't, but I managed to squeeze into the back room and, and sit down and talk to him for a while. Oh, nice. That's yeah. cool. So, yeah, those are my Leary uh, uh, interactions. If people I, don't I, know... I'm, go ahead. I'm Leary, I'm, I'm Leary Jelly. <laughs> Leary Jelly. I think i got to make some of that next time I've... Uh, Next time I'm in the kitchen, um, it's like Jello shots, but yeah, with like with acid in them. Yeah. Acid and ground up Timothy Leary bones, <laughs> or Dennis Leary. I guess you could substitute Dennis Leary in a pinch. Maybe completely different uh, worldviews, but I don't know. I doubt they're that far apart. Really? Maybe not. I don't. Have you listened to a standout? Some of it. Um, he's he's got some great ideas. And uh, the, then there's the um, the one of the best holiday movies ever, which is um, uh, the Ref that he's in. I think that's his best movie. Well, that's debatable, but okay. Well, it's the best one that I've seen. Greg, I forgot to tell you, uh, I'm drinking out of my Los Angeles whiskey glass right now. Where'd you get that? Los, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. But what? What? Like at a bar or something? Oh, at the airport. Oh, oh, it was a it was a um, it was a souvenir that you bought at the airport. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, because I always buy stuff for people, and I I go to other places too. But the airport 
just has branded merch. Yeah, it's there so for, it's for people like you and, and uh, other tourists, I guess. I do the same thing when I go. Well, to... it's, it's there for kids, Greg. It's there for kids. Well, the I'm kids a kid want, then. want like, the T-shirt that says like Kobe on it and stuff. So yeah. So I, I do get them other things, too. But then it's like they can wear like Venice Beach on, on a shirt and whatnot. But this one was for me. It's just a really nice, heavy whiskey glass ah. with uh, like a... Uh, Palm tree. It's super cliche. I'm not talking. Of course about it is. It. Like it's so that's why you got it. Ever. I, did, I got it for myself. Yeah. You know, I'm like I, I get all the kids the Venice Beach stuff. I'm gonna get myself a, a damn whiskey glass. Do you want to talk about extra terrestrial, or do you want to go on assuming people that are smart in this audience know what you mean by that? Yeah, they good. Yeah, I think you're right. However. In some of these um, uh, intelligent questions you've got, has anybody brought up the grandfather paradox and in relation to what you're saying? In other words, how could future humans not be affecting their own timeline? And I was wondering, yeah. maybe it's because in the context of the many worlds hypothesis that includes them coming back to visit and whatever they they're do here spins off a new timeline. Well, ironically, that's the one that creates the most paradoxes is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Without that, in the block universe models, what I adhered to with my first book, mm -hmm. because I can only write based on what people of my time know. And, and right. until I start getting downloads from the future, I get a brain tumor behind my right orbit like Nietzsche had, and he gets like an antenna to superhuman yeah i am bound by what physicists and philosophers say now so i went with the block universe model and within that there actually are no paradoxes it's really funny people think there are but so for instance let's take the grandfather paradox okay yep if you are alive you didn't kill your grandfather exactly and there's yep. no way you can because anything you do in the past, any way you travel to the past, anything you do in that time period manifests itself before you ever went to do it. It's already a part of that past time in the same way that anything that exists in the future is a part of a future time. Okay. Well, so I made a mistake by saying many worlds. It's in the context of a block universe hypothesis. Block, that it, you know, it, it includes and, them coming back to visit and whatever they do is what is only in the block universe yeah. yeah so you get back to your time after you went back and did whatever um everything's the same there 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 is no <laughs> to reference the simpsons every everybody's not donuts you don't <laughs> you don't get home and everybody turned into donuts like everything's the same because anything you did in the past was already there before you went to do it everything right. in the block universe exists already and that doesn't mean you can't travel to the past it doesn't mean you can't travel to the future mm -hmm. Just all those connections those bridges through space-time are already there and it's it's beautiful and i can't wait till we get to the point where those exist as a interwoven network of events almost i i see it almost like the networks in the brain but it's not just the brain it's i mean maybe that maybe that's what takes us to that that pulsating orb of light in the future is once we start integrating ourselves in that way, 
connecting points in space-time, connecting our consciousness in space-time and learning from all of these other points where you, you travel into the future and take information back to the past. Once that's allowed, how, how much could be learned? You know, you don't, you, don't, you don't take off a semester from college and go to France and then try to take stuff back and everybody's like, oh yeah, you saw the Eiffel Tower, sweet, you're kind of an asshole now. We're talking about <laughs> going to the future and bringing back information nobody's ever even thought of. You're smoking a bowl with your buddies, they're like, wait, what's it like in 3025? Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, it's nuts. And so you have this conversation where you're connecting these points in time from the past and the future and and i nothing nothing prohibits that there's no paradoxes in that and we mm. need to stop talking about it in the context of the grandfather's paradox cuz it's so simplistic and it doesn't yeah. exist in the block universe however with that said and i realize this was a failing of my first book is that i didn't talk about the many worlds interpretation because there's no evidence for it i didn't think mm. it needed to be talked about but just in case it is important to recognize what different scenarios would be like in that space-time reality. Mm -hmm. And so I try to do that, and it's, it, it, does, it is different. Those paradoxes exist. You, you have, anytime there's change involved, there are absolutely paradoxes that emerge. And I, I mostly talked about in the context of these, um, these nuclear installation events what what are they trying to do there you know are they trying to change something are they monitoring what what is their intent and and what if there is a nuclear calamity and and a lot of people like ross coltheart and uh frank milburn are trying to get out information about a uh, a possible outcome like that and i think it's important to discuss it's a a, a potentiality and their their sources in the government their sources in the intelligence community are saying that there are different timelines uh there is the mandela effect it is real mm -hmm. and we we also need to consider that so i i've expanded my frame of reference i still adhere to the block universe model but i definitely think we should keep everything on the table including the multiverse and including different outcomes that could take place if there are multiple timelines. There, there are issues with that in the same way that there's issues with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I think there are issues with uh, the multiverse, but I'll, I'll let the listeners decide what those are. I'm in L.A., so a, a, a um, ghetto bird's going by. Let's let that go by. Yeah, I have. We have those here too, my friend. Oh yeah, yeah. They're putting out fires. Not so much looking for O.J. Simpson, but <laughs> they fly over with these big buckets of water to put out the fires around here. I was kind of fascinated by the closed timeline curve concept as a viable theory, but allows backwards time travel. Could you explain that one? Because I barely got it reading in the book, and it was like I guess extrapolated for something Einstein had uh, uh, posited. Yeah, I mean, what's funny is Einstein, <laughs> it, he never really, he what's, well, the irony is that he gave uh, these field equations, 
And what we call them are the solutions to his field equations. But they're not really solutions in the way that we we solve anything. Yeah, they seem more like questions the way you present them. They're questions that breed questions. They should Mm -hmm. call them Einstein's field equations and the questions (laughs) to his equations. But no, so what he laid out in his 10 field equations associated with his 1915 paper on general relativity, where you actually have a warpage of space-time, which largely grew out from a 1907 paper by Minkowski, who was his advisor, Mm -hmm. that grew out of Einstein's 1905 paper on special relativity. So they were were sort of going back and forth, um, working collaboratively. And and it's, it's funny to watch the history of this play out because... Both were working feverishly. They they realized they were onto something, mm-hmm. and and I would love to be in. If we ever get backward time travel technology, <laughs> I'd, I'd go back and watch a couple Grateful Dead shows, and then that process <laughs> where where Minkowski and Einstein are just hashing it out, like trying to figure out what the fuck space time is, and they did a great job. They're obviously missing some things because we don't have a unified theory of general relativity and quantum mechanics yet. Mm-hmm. And and maybe we don't even need that. Maybe, yeah, the, the, maybe the, there's something else that we've overlooked where time doesn't work the way that we thought it did. Yeah. And, and quantum mechanics is irrelevant. I don't, I don't know. It, clearly time is emergent. Space is probably emergent, but and there's something more fundamental that we'll get to eventually. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Nobody knows. In any case, uh, as Close we time understand curve. it, Closed timelike curves are probably a real thing because we can we are still bound by the speed of light no matter what. We live in this physical reality where the speed of light binds us to space and time. So you can think of shining a light and that light radiate, radiates out a beam and within that light cone, as it's called, nothing can move faster than that because the speed of light, roughly 300,000 kilometers per second, is the speed limit of the universe, at least in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. if in order to travel to the past, we have to keep in our local reference frame moving forward. So we bend those light cones over, which allows us to travel into the global past. We're still moving forward. Our world line still travels forward through that light cone but it's moving into the global past. And I think, as I point out in my first book, I think that we need to use special relativity too. I think we need to travel at a very high rate of speed in order to move into the future of that past. Because if you just turn those light cones over and you're not doing anything to modify the rate at which you live relative to other things, you're just Going inching. forward, yeah. You're, well, you're going to the past, but you're inching into mm. the past. Oh, I see. So, so with with time dilation, with special relativity, if you travel at a very high rate of speed, and I, I think a lot of times where these craft power up, and then they they shoot straight up, I think they're going back in time when they do that, because they their light cones are shifted toward the past. They shoot straight up, make sure that everything's out of their way. All planets, satellites are probably going to be harder. Asteroids, whatever. <laughs> And then use special relativity to go deeper and faster into that past with those light cones oriented toward it. 
because otherwise there's nothing that really propels them into the past. It's almost like a hyper speed of uh, that 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 we equate with the the Alcubierre drive and like that faster than light travel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like we need that. But I do think if they want to go deep into the past, they have to use uh, a, a very high velocity to do that in association with the tipping over of light cones. Okay, I will admit that I understood probably half of that. God damn it. I failed. <laughs> I failed. Was the, it the dog barking or was it? The no, it was the light cone. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I kind of... The light cone that is composed of uh, present being the the center, the top of the cone or bottom of it, and the past being the uh, the uh, bottom of it, and the other cone going into the future. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I skipped over some things there. So, so after Einstein published his paper in 1915, very shortly afterwards, uh, you have lens and theorine, the lens theorine effect, where they showed, and this has been proven since then as most of these theories of his had uh and you got to wonder if einstein was a time traveler tesla too mm-hmm. where where you have um the warpage of space time does create this warpage of time too where it's right they're 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 connected they're connected absolutely so so then you extrapolate that up in the 1930s you have van stockham with these infinitely long cylinders you have uh, Godel, mm-hmm. where he's talking about this massive, infinitely long disk, right? And then in the 1970s, Frank Tipler shows mathematically, and again, I don't think we necessarily need mathematics for this in a logical standpoint to understand it, but it's it's how we are going to figure out how to do this. Uh, he shrinks that infinite Godel universe down to a disk. Mm-hmm. Now we're essentially talking about a ufo (laughs) a rapidly spinning highly energetic disc that can create closed time light curves that can shift those light cones on their side or even reverse them to the point where locally someone inside this machine can venture into the global past and and that's that's as as far as we got in the 70s, however, you have people like David Lewis Anderson, you have people like uh, Jack Sarfati who are saying, we know how to do this now, we just don't have the materials with which to do it. The yeah. physics of this are understood, and it kind of makes sense. Or the sense. power source to be able to do this. that paper in 1915, and all of these other people have showed these solutions to his 10 to field equations, we probably do. We just don't yet have the materials to figure this out. But once we do, we're going to be doing it. There's no question about that. Yeah. And I, I honestly, one of the biggest surprises for me in researching this last book is how many people are people that people come into contact with. They're, they're not the gray aliens that I was talking about in my first book. They're people just like us. And I, I'm starting to think that it's probably going to be pretty soon that we not only develop this technology, but we start to actually integrate ourselves. We start to talk about it, and we have broad acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And what was really mind-blowing is about a week after I published this book, I read Joe McMonagall's book, uh, The Ultimate Time Machine. 
And on page 174, he I said— I have that book. I better go look. On page 174, you go look it up. And, and you could read it verbatim. I'm just going to paraphrase that by mid-century, this century that we're living in, mm-hmm. UFOs will be broad, broadly understood as time machines. And I was like, damn. That Didn't that book come out like 15, faster. 20 years ago? Yeah, I wrote it in the 1990s, the early yeah. 1990s. Yeah. And he predicted, uh, as a remote viewer does, mm-hmm. and he's not right about everything. And he acknowledges he's not right about everything. No, he's right no. They're about they're, 78% they're, yeah. of things. And I was like, you know, I had this whole first chapter about all these people that had talked about this time travel model. And here it is, a remote viewer, the best remote viewer we've ever had, predicted that by the mid, like, 2045, 2050, I forget exactly what he said, UFOs will be widely acknowledged as time machines. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I about, about poop my pants, Greg. I wonder if um, in any of his writings that Ingo Swan said something similar. Because Did he write a lot? I haven't really... He wrote mm, like four books, I think. That's kind of a lot. I'd say that's definitely a lot. Yeah. Um, Some fiction, uh, one fiction book, I think, and then three or four, I mean, two or three or something like that on his ideas about what he'd remote viewed, what remote viewing was about. Well, well, what piqued my interest was when we were at opening the archives of The Impossible. I was going to ask you about that. Ed May was up there and he was talking about Joe McMonagle. Remember, he showed that video of him on like some yeah, on some TV show doing TV a show. yeah doing a uh, yeah, remote viewing awesome, tasking. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> somebody asked him like, "What about UFOs?" And he did a dodge of the question. And to me, that always triggers me. I'm like, "Well, why did you dodge that question? That must mean there's something very interesting there." And and so I came home and looked it up, bought the book, read the book, and I'm like, "That is interesting." But then it's also interesting. Why did Ed May not just say what he said about it? What did he say? He said they were not allowed to remote view different times or things like that when they worked for us. But I know that they did outside of work. Yes. And of course he knew he did because he wrote a fucking book about it. Yeah. So, so that that's interesting. Why can't he talk about that he knows about the book he cited in the book many many times mm-hmm. why didn't he just say yeah joe wrote a book about that go look at it i don't know if he felt that there's got to be some you know something he doesn't want to talk about for a reason he doesn't want to say the weird thing is and i i asked this i went to the remote viewing conference up in um, menlo park about three weeks yeah. ago and i found that Every single remote viewer was into the UFO thing. Every single one. Interesting. Why is that? And I asked them, I asked a couple of them. They said, well, it just, it intersects with stuff that we do. And it's, um, you know, there may be deeper reasons for it. Ingo Swan was very interested in UFO stuff. He he even wrote about it in uh, in, uh, Penetration. He wrote about seeing a... uh, UFO appear over a lake after he was taken to someplace like in Alaska or something by somebody from the defense industry. 
just said, just wait and look. And he said, this thing just appeared or rose out of or appeared over this lake. I think it no was in kidding. Alaska. And he said, at first, he didn't know what the hell he was looking at. He had actually yeah. had to kind of think about it to get it to re, to uh, um, um, configure into something that he could handle as as a human looking at something. So it's... It, it, the UFO thing is embedded deep within the um, remote viewing community, and they have that's they, interesting. They all have an incredible um, interest in it. And I did like Joe McMonagall's book, though I I I really found it to be, I found it to be honest. Mm-hmm. I found it to be very genuine and honest, and like this this is what i did this is who i am this is the best i can do and i want to write it down and i thought that was awesome yeah i mean i've i interviewed him in god 96 or something like that and he, one of the best interviews ever really nice guy was very patient with me seems and, like it and yeah, so was lynn buchanan like actually i went out and visited him in in alamogordo where he still lives in 97 and interviewed him i wrote lynn buchanan down actually it's funny. I write down a lot of things during these conversations because I don't have a good train of thought. I mean, my train of thought's good. It just gets derailed. Oh, mine by... gets derailed constantly. That's I'm, yeah, I'm recording so you know. this, but a lot of conversations, if I want to remember what was said, I'll kind of give myself little notes after so I can remember weeks, months, or well, years later. Well, I do later. it in real time. Yeah. Because, and also because a lot of times with call-in shows, they'll ask like a five-part question, so I'm just making little notes, and I'll, I'll uh, jot things down. Lynn's um, one of the originals. Um, uh, we had a really nice conversation the first time I met him, and then I saw him this this year. You know, he's 83 now. And the, those are the people is. that you know are genuine and you know they're really dedicated to their craft is there like michael murphy at us and he's what 93 yeah 93 and he's still he's still just going hard into ideas and mm-hmm. really trying to push theory and it's it's amazing i have mad respect for people that get to that age like i i feel genuinely lazy in most respects oh so well, I, me too I, always, I feel ridiculously lazy it, Actually, one of the best things you ever told me, and it was a very important point in my life, because I was working on this uh, this most recent book, and you were like, if I'm not obsessed with it, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. You told me that on the phone one day, and I was like, God damn, he's right. Like, I do have to feel that, or I'm just not going to do it, or, or I could do it, and it would be crap. You know, you need to, like, feel that drive. And and clearly these people do this with their lifetimes. They feel this life of just wanting to know and constantly know more as much as they can within the time that their consciousness is within the confines of their brain. And I got I got mad respect for that. You've got how many how many cases in the book? Fifteen. Yeah, I got well. Kind of. I've got 15 case studies that I really focused on, but there's, uh, I'd say probably another 15 that get brought in that I think are relevant. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, Just, you've got a whole bunch within those narratives. There are, and discussions, there are other cases and, and facts and uh, quotes brought up. Yes. Yeah. So probably like 15 within 15, I'd say. But But yeah, as far as just really focusing on 
individual case studies. Uh, yeah, there's 15 of them. Some, what I was trying to do was make a broad temporal and geographic sample. Um, yes, also you, you definitely did. That, Except the first two, are, which are right next to each other for <clears throat> actually important reasons you point out in the text. For important reasons, yeah. It's crazy. Like, they might have been... <laughs> All right, I don't want to give any spoilers, but... Yeah, yeah. give some spoilers. It'll give people uh, incentive to, to buy I, the book. They might have been the exact same visitors that these two very different people in two different states, but then... Like 80 miles apart or something? Well, no, hundreds of miles apart oh, okay. initially. So, so Mike and Leo Dorschach, um first encountered these beings. It's, it's hard to even say the word beans when they're clearly humans. They're exactly human people, do human things. They're Dressed studying grasshoppers in the same way that we study grasshoppers today. But uh, was was so foreign to them, especially as German immigrants. And this uh, was in the 1930s, they said, right? 1930s, yeah, it was the Dust Bowl America. And so uh, Mike Dorschach, unfortunately, he died in the Korean War, but Leo Dorschach, Leo Dorschach went on to have a, a lifelong relationship with these same visitors that kept coming back to that place. And then he, he moved to uh, near Bozeman, Montana, and encountered them again in later life. And one of the important things is that they never seem to age, which is really interesting in the context of this time travel model, because if you were going back and had time travel technology and you could pick people up and you could uh, study them throughout their lifetime, they would see that same thing. You would, you over the course of, say, a three-day operation, you're picking up this one individual at age 5, 20, 35, 60, 75, 80, and they don't see you age at all because you're not. It's two days to you, but it's an entire lifetime to them. And he and many other experiencers experience that. Um, but yeah, so so what's interesting about that case and then the next one, Udu Wartena, who really got a ton of information um yeah, a lot, of, lot, of, lot of technical information, actually. Technical information. They usually, you know, most people don't get that because I think, one, they, they're they scared. This guy was just like, shit, what's going on? He, he was easily bored by the mentality of reality, too, speaking of. <laughs> um, so he's like, sure, I'll go on board, check this place out. And they told him everything you want to know. And this encounter involved a really interesting sort of side note where they could tell him everything about the technology, answer every question about their day-to-day -day lives, what they were doing on the ship, what this thing did, that thing did. But the one thing they could not talk about was Jesus Christ and religion. Yeah. And that is fascinating. It makes you, again, ask why. Why not? Why can't you talk about that? Yeah, and it raises Other contactees, they did talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like religion is sometimes talked about. It's sometimes not talked about. Mm -hmm. It's a confusing thing that I think permeates a lot of these encounters. Um, but so getting back to like the space and the time thing, mm -hmm. uh, this Udo Artana guy who was a minor in Helena saw them 
only about 20 miles from where Leo Dorschach saw them near Bozeman in his later life. And and I, I do kind of think that they were using Udo Ortena's sluice stream as a place to get water, which he, he revealed or at least articulated that that's what powered their, their craft. They use hydrogen. And I think down there in L.A. you got buses that do the same damn thing, right? Well, they don't suck water out of... Um, um, well, uh, they should. Drive them up here to Helena, Montana. We'll get them all the water they want. <laughs> I can't remember how their hydrogen is made. I think it's made with a um, uh, from natural gas, I think it's derived. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, I don't know. Doesn't it, Isn't it a lot of power to, to uh, separate hydrogen out of water? Yes. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, that's beyond my, my pay grade, my friend. But I would like to ask a question from a question. Yeah, go so ahead. You talked about some cases where they do divulge their... Uh, I mean, obviously, the Nation of Islam grew up from UFO contact, but they never actually said, we're coming here to do this to give you religion. You you said there no. are cases where they do, so I was curious. About oh no those. no, there's not cases where they say they come to give religion, but they do say that there's, and you know this happens mostly with contactee stuff and channeled stuff, where they basically say, well, the space people say that uh, Jesus was right because obviously they're speaking to a Christian audience, and that um, that that should be followed, and it's not being followed, and if you did. Um, there wouldn't be nuclear wars, and there wouldn't be you wouldn't have the problem with the uh, with, with the environment and all that stuff, and people would get along. Um, it was basically a humanistic uh, message, but the religion was discussed as a as a good, like they would say, Jesus was right, and you should listen to him. Um, yeah, and that that's that happened over and over in in contactee stories, and. Not so much in abductee stories, as far as I know, but there's there's probably a good part of the literature where, where the um, whoever visitors do talk about religion. I actually, so thought do you it, think I thought that, it was kind of weird where Martina said they wouldn't talk about it? Yeah, I know, and that that stuck out to me too, as the only thing specifically. So I I take that, and I wonder sometimes if. Because you do have like Ezekiel's experience, and you have uh, God. I mean, there's there's so many like uh, all of the the members of the Nation of Islam who uh, have had contact, seemingly abductee experiences too, mm-hmm. where where they're they're inspired by it. It seems to be a part of their message and how could it not be like something like that happens to you you're going to talk about it you're going to be a prophet other people haven't had those experiences so you have like moses muhammad even even old testament shit yep i sometimes wonder what if that was implanted as like a litmus test for us to for them to figure out when we would be ready for full-on contact where we where they put this here we kill each other maybe it's even population control like as einstein said once there was uh one god there was killing in his name and i think maybe rage against the machine said something similar too Mm -hmm. (laughs) where where (laughs) where you you have population control and 
they get to fight and kill each other, and then at the end, you're like, okay, now they're ready for us to to contact them. Once once God is dead, essentially, kind of a Nietzschean context too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, I always tend to because of my co-creation thing. I always think that there is more of us in a contact experience than there is of whatever is contacted. Okay. So if that concept does exist, it's uh, it's something that would be perfectly um, logical that, that humans could think of it themselves. Um, but, you know, there's, nothing goes off the table, obviously. I, I guess I'm talking about what if it was forced upon us as just like a stake in the ground, you know, where we went to the moon and we said, boom, we've been here. We stuck our phallic pole in the ground with our <laughs> weirdly colored flag on it we said uh this is ours now like what if they do actually have to figure out when we as a human population the same species the same population at some point Mm -hmm. would be ready to like be talked to and and what if religion is that thing that we're all like kind of getting to the point where we're like oh you know it's kind of really close-minded and kind of the opposite of what those original teachings of jesus were yeah like maybe maybe this is the time to start instigating that that operation where we can take it to the next level and yeah maybe so i mean i I did um i think there was i I gave a talk a couple uh, last week in in uh, class at diana pasulka was teaching and I think I might have mentioned all this stuff is going on right now, starting off with the Blumenthal Keen uh, glowing orbs and black money thing in 2017. And the other person whose name we can never remember. I can't remember the other person. So she name. was the first author on it. Is it yeah. Heidi something, maybe? Maybe. I can look I feel it up bad that we never say her name because we always. Well, say she it. never comes anyway, out and talks about it. You know, Blumenthal yeah, went and wrote a the yeah. first author on it. Yeah. 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 Blumenthal goes off and writes a book about John. John uh, Mac, Mac, and then we know what Leslie Keene has done. So what my proposition was in that talk was that this is all happening. Is it happening in a vacuum? Probably not. But how much is something that's been pushed on us or predetermined or nudged? or And how much of it is the intelligence community and the DOD and all that want to open this up for, you know, uh, for people to, uh, for whatever reason, um, probably not the obvious ones that we think of, but also, you know, some of the obvious ones, but you know, what made them do it? Is there, is there some external force that said, okay, maybe this is time. And this is the first time actually somebody's mentioned that in about a week since I, I said that it's not an original idea at all, but I was just thinking about it when I, when I, um, put that talk together. I, I don't think it's up to us. I don't think it's up to any government. I don't think it's up to anyone in our time. I think it's up to them. Mm. And I think they have decided that it's time. And I think we're living through moments right now that indicate that. And it's fucking amazing. It's so cool to see what's happening because it it was never about us. I do think what happened in 1947. <laughs> That's funny. I said, this isn't about you. That was one of my slides. Was that the only slide? <laughs> this isn't about you. The reason I said it is because we don't know 
the origins of why this is so hot right now, where, no matter where it comes from. I guess U- that's UFO what I'm people to say. always always think, oh, this is it, and this is the thing I've always wanted. It's like it's not for you; it's for some other reason. Exactly, and, and yeah. I think it was always up to someone else, mm. and I think they have decided. And and think about it, like if these are okay, and and this could be any other thing, but let's just focus on the extra tempestual model for a second. If these are future humans, uh-huh. and we eventually become them, yeah. We eventually recognize them. We recognize their technology. We don't need to become them for us to be them. They can say, all right, well, yeah, close enough. You know, it's like if you were out. Well, it's I, like I being like learning. It's like being in a, it's like being in a, 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 mon, a you know, a Zen monastery or we, in Buddhist, in, in Dharma class once when I used to do that, they said, you know, we like, do we need to go through all this just to figure out that we don't need to go through all this? And the answer yeah. was yes. Yes, we do need to go through all this to figure out that we don't need we to go do. through all this. We do. Yeah. I, you can't be told. It has no. to. Yeah. It has to be. It, it has to be you have lived. to be close enough. And that's people are always like, well, why has the government kept this from us for seven years? Can you imagine if they were like. Oh yeah, hey, where are you from the future and you have no free will. So good luck with that. <laughs> I mean but but I also think I was just thinking the other day. Could you imagine how, the amount of punditry if that ever comes out? Like how many people are trying to tell you what it means? Yes. What if I donated to a sperm bank and it was widely successful and I had like thousands of children? In that region, you would expect to see them. Like, would you recognize your children that had half of your DNA as you're walking around the street? You know, at some point when we have almost all of their DNA, at least speaking throughout the last six to eight million years of hominin evolution, they would recognize us. We would recognize those that little eight year old boy on the street be like, Daddy. And you'd be like, No, son, not daddy. Sperm bank. <laughs> but I feel like that's where we are. Yeah. You know, they they feel like sperm bank daddy from the future. And it must at some point they must recognize where we start to be that eight year old that's asking them. Yeah, to have the even the the wherewithal and the and the uh the capacity to even ask that question. And not even just our the physical form, but the technology. It's it's getting to the point where it's so similar to our own. Obviously, when Ezekiel saw this shit, he's like, "Nope, gonna gonna make some biblical shit about that." But now it's so similar to what we have. We just can't figure out the exact materials. That's where we're at. That's the last piece of the puzzle. So for them, if they are them, again, could be other things. If they are them. They must see that we are close, close enough maybe where they can just tell us. Mm, maybe. Yeah, I'm so I'm I'm so far behind you on this because I'm so equivocating in the way I think about things. It's like, well, maybe, well, maybe not. And I like equivocate, to- equivocate. Greg. <laughs> That's why we're here. Let's talk about it. Well, my equivocation is the same thing. How much of is it coming from outside of us and how much is it coming from inside of us? And how much do we extrapolate from what we see? I am almost certain to the point of 
proselytizing, yes, there's another consciousness. Yes, it interacts with us occasionally. Past that, I'm not sure, Mike. I'm just not sure past that. And past that, all speculation to me is on the table. But I don't know how much agency to assign it, you know? Yeah. Um, and some in some days I think there's tons of agency and it should and it's you know there's there's a guiding hand there or some teleology and then other days I think it's just undifferentiated weirdness that we have to make sense of so we do it in the way that that humans do yeah no I'm I'm right there with you I agree a hundred percent and, and it, it is weird that's a day-to-day thing it's a state of mind thing it's I don't know maybe how much we're open or closed as a, a sort of jack-in-the-box that jumps out and scares everybody or goes back to think about what he just saw. Yeah, and then Diana said something in her class that really kind of floored me and made, made a lot of sense. She said, when you get into this, if you're studying it, and you open the door and you step in and you start talking about this in a certain way, you cannot go back. And the only yeah. way you're going to be able to go forward is to basically jump into that abyss where you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen to your um, reputation. You don't know if you're going to go insane, but you just jump into that abyss. And not Absolutely. many people want to do that. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes ever, uh, Jeff Kripal put in his Authors of the Impossible book, was a quote by Amy Michel, that valet said, ufology is not a science, but a process of initiation. <laughs> One starts with field investigations and ends up studying Arab mystics. Yes. That could not be more true. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, it's a, I, not, not specifically Arab mystics, but yes. Yeah. As You'd an be, example. Yeah. And like that kid that, that called me out for not knowing shit in 2019 in my first talk in a tiny <laughs> church in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, bro. Yeah. No, I get you. I had no shit back then. I still don't. But I know a lot more now than I did then. The whole process is just a a really fascinating rabbit hole. Yeah, and you just keep going down it and you you told me that the um the uh conference at uh, in Houston for the Archives of the Impossible that it really affected you deeply. Do you want to talk it did. about it? Yeah. In what way? I mean, in what well, ways actually? Cuz I saw you there and you looked really interested and almost kind of stunned about what was going on. I was. Yeah. I mean, so my my wife has always been a very open-minded spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And so we've had a ton of conversations and I I was never dismissive. I just didn't really understand. I never had like a frame of reference with which to connect in that way. But even though it was hot as shit in Houston in March, which is crazy. Yeah, it was. It was hot and humid. It Not was horribly so humid, hot. But yeah, I'm wearing a sport coat and long sleeves because yeah. I'm coming from March in Montana. Yeah. Uh, I I definitely felt an opening of my mind from listening to all of the open minds and being in this room with people and and the acceptance of it. Like you got to give it to Rice University. You got to give it to Jeff Kripal and all of them for making graduate students and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Learn it. But one of the, yeah, they're, they're just, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, it was like, 
so so I started writing this my first book in 2012, and at some point I said I give no fucks what mm-hmm. the outcome is. Mm-hmm. Like I had a reputable career, I had a reputable publication record, but this was always the thing I wanted to do. And it pulls you. I, it just pulls you. It does, and I felt kind of alone in the process because I didn't know that other people were also doing this. Yeah. And, open and it wasn't it. just that other people aren't doing it. It's been shown to me that other people are, and that's fantastic. But there's something about the community that Jeff Kripal builds and the way they work together to create a space in this time that brings ideas not just to fruition but also to acceptance. And I think that was what was so mind-boggling to me is that I saw all of these amazing people coming together in this space who have been doing these things for most of their lives, mm-hmm. and there's an admiration and acceptance of these people who challenge the status quo, who are, who are the authors of the impossible, I guess, who yeah. gave no fucks to get to the point where they were. And and just to be immersed in that environment was 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 really... Yeah, it was it was life changing for me. I would say because it didn't exist before that, and now that I've seen that and I've gotten to see and and know many others who have created similar things in the past, it's yeah. I guess it opened a new rabbit hole, a black hole rabbit hole, where there's a singularity there somewhere, and we're all chasing it. Yeah, and it's. Um... And they all know it's there, and it's different for everybody, but the same for everybody, just like a UFO sighting to me. Yeah, you know, everybody yeah, has definitely. a different, you know, a different experience of it, a different explanation, a different, you know, philosophy behind it, more or less. But they all know it's the same thing. Like when two people that have had a um, a, a sighting come together, completely different particulars on the sighting, but they both know something happened, and they both know it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They can have different interpretations. And obviously there's a lot of interpretations yeah. for something we're, like this. We're talking about so one of them right moment. now for this entire interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I think we can extrapolate that upward too or speculate, as you say, to a point where it can be an explanation of these things too where we don't have to have the same explanation. We don't have to have the same interpretation we can just talk about it openly and logically and i mean not to circle back to our previous tragedy to move on but that's what didn't exist there in that space and they served they served a purpose that long history that opened up things that provided a sheltered space for people to come who had had an experience who could you know have someone come out where they had an anomalous event their cows got Their buttholes sucked out. Like, that's important. You need someone <laughs> to show up for that. But evolve. We need to be able to talk about this as a community, as an open-minded, collaborative community of scientists, yep. researchers, everybody. Yeah, it's part of the reason um, I'm writing the intro for the book for the uh, tarot cards right now, for the ufology, uh, ufology That's going to be a book, too? Yeah, there's a book, a coffee table book with all the cards, oh, nice. all the 20 
22 major arcanas uh, reproduced eight and a half by 11 size pages and then explanations of who's on the card why they're on the card what are the what are the um what yeah. do these symbols mean why they're you know why we included them and the point was one of the points of this was this deep belief i have uh mike is that and you were just talking about it it is an individual experience of the same thing and it's the most individual experience you could possibly think of for a lot of people but it's also all coming from the same thing and the only way people are going to understand it is on an individual level they cannot be told yeah you cannot have it yeah you can't have it you can't have it uh, spoken to you it either has to happen to you or you have to deeply engage with people that it's ha- that it's it has happened to so that you can begin to understand what's going on and everybody will understand it in a different way and the point but even the- then it requires empathy those yeah. people have to be empathetic people and yep. a lot of people aren't they have no way of embracing someone else's experience yeah and if you can i guess that gives you partly a part of a ticket to um engage in this if you want to and the point of the cards partially was to get if people are interested that they will start throwing these cards down and parts of their subconscious that sort of will talk to them and tell them why and tell them what they might want to look at and who they might be interested in and if you you know mm. if you throw what um Jenny Randall's down next to um like Phil Class what what does that tell you you yeah. know or the tower or something with Hector Quintanilla and and for um Donald Kehoe being blasted off the Washington Monument. What will that tell you? What what kind of ideas does that bring up in your mind that you didn't have before? Right. And the, and the um, I mean, I'm talking too much, but it's... You are not. You are <laughs> not. I, I think it's unfortunate that people who have podcasts think they only need to make the guest talk. Well, I've never felt that way. And usually I'll talk more if the guest isn't very interesting, which is not this case. I just wanted to kind of um, explain to you sort of why, what, what the idea behind the cards were. And one of it, a very specific one is self-discovery in a way that is uh, open-ended. So, and yeah. I think that's one of the keys to understanding. Open-ended this. self-discovery. Yeah. Absolutely. And as a uh, top-notch gold star podcast host, you brought it right back to what we were talking about, too. <laughs> Circle the square, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> they do that in comedy a lot, too, or if you bring something back. Uh, oh, yeah. If you bring something back, it, it, it whatever joke you had has got, now the audience has a background for it, and you can twist the logic even more. Well, hey, to circle back from a slightly more proximate point in the future. Sure. I'm I'm stoked about this book. I Like, I don't, I don't do tarot cards. I'll... I'll buy some, like I said, my my much more enlightened, uh, beautiful, spiritual wife. I'll buy a set for her, and she'll teach me how they work. But uh, just seeing the book, like the artwork's incredible, and I I can't wait to to see your description of these too. And yeah, and well, the, all of us the in the context because yeah. like the context to me is super interesting. Like the backstory of it, like how did you put this person here? with these things because you work together on this is yeah. his name miguel or miguel susan demeter dave metcalf and josh cutchin are in my group it's a team effort that's awesome. it's a team effort so basically we discuss each card for something like 10 12 sometimes more hours 
there's surprises and clues all, all over the cards. Surprises and clues. And once, like, is Miguel okay with us figuring it out? Like, does he want us to figure it out? Or will we never figure it out because it's too esoteric? No, some people may figure it out. There were some things that I didn't see or I couldn't figure out. And he uh, um, explained to me and other things like, oh, hey, Miguel, what's that? Does that refer to it? He goes, ah, ha, ha, you found it. Just nice. stuff like that. Oh, so, that's awesome. Um, I actually. I, that's, I, what, I, that's what the magic of uh, creating things is. Uh, that's why movie directors won't talk about certain things. Or Stanley Kubrick would never tell you why he did mm-hmm. certain things. Mm-hmm. David Lynch will never tell you why he does certain things because it'll take your individual experience will now be robbed of you because you've got an explanation. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes fun just to embed things for no reason. Like when I, when I joined graduate school at Iowa State, my advisor asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, oh, I don't know. What do you think I should do? And he said the exact thing I knew he was going to say for many dreams I had had before. <laughs> and then not long after that, uh, he asked me to do the illustrations for his book, Sparing Nature. Mm-hmm. And one of them evolved, involved a Devonian scene. That was a funny slip of the tongue because it was about an evolutionary scene. And so I did it, but within the eyes of one of these trilobites, I drew another Devonian scene, <laughs> but slightly more evolved. Yeah. So what you were just saying kind of reminded me of that, where you, artistically you stick things in there that nobody will ever see, but you know they're there. And it makes you kind of happy just to know there's like a deeper thing that could be seen and maybe somebody will see it eventually. But what are the odds that somebody's ever going to take a microscope to this one random image of a Devonian scene in Jeffrey McKee's book, Sparing Nature, and then see that? It's just, you don't do it for other people. You do it for yourself. Yeah, exactly. And that's why that's what Miguel's doing for himself. We we plan the things down to the, you know, down to the last iota. And then he takes it and he does his interpretation of it, which sometimes I agree with and And, sometimes I don't. But it's fun with it. Yeah. As long as he's having fun. Because if he's not having fun, nobody's having fun. Oh, no, he's having fun. You can tell. And and when when we when he puts the new ones out and we start talking about it, he starts laughing and giggling because he's really happy about the. You know, I hope to meet him someday. Sounds like a, a fantastic individual. It's great that you built this team and you're doing this. I can't wait to see it. Your last chapter, or not the last chapter, but it's uh, the one on the Tic Tacs and the and the whole Navy, the, the videos and all that. The one you didn't read, you mean? Yeah. What? And I want to ask you this because it's 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 a question that's bothering me or it's been on my mind. Why do you think that happened? And well, we did talk about it a little bit. You said maybe it's from from us from the future telling us to do this. No, I, a friend of mine offered an interesting explanation recently. Uh, that's usurped my other ideas. <laughs> As it should. As it should. Yeah. Yeah, A a friend I randomly ran into at this thing we have called Music on Main, Uh where they closed down the street and set up. He he comes up and he he had just read the Hal Putoff paper. He's like, or no, he didn't. He was listening to a podcast by uh, who's the Black Bolt person? John Greenwald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, dude, they said your name, like your full name. 
I'm like, yeah, okay. What are they talking about? Yeah. Were (laughs) they nice? Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Were they? I I didn't even care. I didn't even ask about that. It's like, what were they talking about? It's like, yeah, there's this paper by this guy named Hal Putoff. I was like, yeah, yeah. Guy's got his finger in all the dikes. Yeah. Uh, So then he starts telling me, he's like, so, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, like, these different agencies aren't talking to each other. What if the Tic Tac was actually ours. And of course, I'm like, nah, screw that, man. It's not ours. Like, think about antiquity. They've been helping all this stuff. It's like, shut up, man. Just shut up. Listen, what if they are ours and the Air Force, who's been developing this, was testing it on the Navy without their knowledge to see what the effect would be on this other branch who doesn't know what's been developed from this other branch? Because it does seem like in the context of Congress and what's happening, nobody's talking to each other. Oh, NASA's getting involved. Sweet. What does that have any significance? Have they been collecting data? The Air Force this whole time has been not only collecting data, but probably reverse engineering these things. What if they got to the point where the Tic Tac was the closest they could get to the space-time manipulation, the anti-gravity, and they're like, what safer place to test this than on a different branch of our own military, part of the DOD, where we know we're not going to hurt anybody, and we just test our capabilities, and they're going to monitor every little bit of it. Yeah, makes sense. Although, probably the commanders of the ships would have to know. And maybe they did. Yeah. So that they wouldn't, you know, people would say, should we fire, sir, or whatever, they go, they can't no. fire on something that lives its life at 20 times the speed that you do. Exactly. No, but have a three They could sloth, they could fire at something and it might hit another plane or hit a ship or whatever. So that's why somebody at the top would have to know what was going on. I, I don't even think they would. Hmm. I don't even think they would. I think the response would be exactly what it was with hmm. David Fravor being like, "Yeah, I'll follow this thing, but I don't know what it was and I couldn't keep up with it." They're just mesmerized. Every, civilians say the same thing. They're just stunned yeah. by what they're seeing. Yeah. You, you said it earlier about, who was it, that saw it rise up out of the water? It was Ingo Swan? Yeah. Where you saw it rise up out of the water? You're just, you're stunned. And you're flying this highly sophisticated machine. He, he, he didn't instantly go to the guns. He's like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, you know what? You talked about that. You talked about, what was it, UFO apathy in the book? Yeah, I think that's different. I think that's for abductees. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, that's I was looking at it as kind of like the, you know, suddenly you don't do what you would normally. I saw uh, I mean, something. it could definitely apply to that. Yeah, but go ahead. But that, that would only apply if there's telepathy involved, if there's some sort of higher consciousness entity that can actually instill those thoughts in your brain or lack of thoughts in your brain. But with the Tic Tac, it, it seemed different. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm putting it out there because my friend Matt Brazil mentioned it the other day, and I thought it made a lot of sense. But it's only for that situation. I don't think yeah. any yeah. of the other ones. It doesn't apply to those. Only in that Tic Tac that Fravor and and Dietrich saw. I, right. I think it only applies to that. But UFO apathy, like what experienced by so many other people, Terry Lovelace, Tony mm-hmm. Oviaspos, I mean, the list is huge. I think that's got to be an aspect of consciousness and telepathy. I, it seems like mind control. And, and there could be an AI component to that too, but I, I feel like it's something more human. 
Yeah. What do you mean by apathy then? Just ignoring the fact that something is right outside your window that should cause you great alarm. Right. Because they went up camping. They see this weird thing Terry Lovelace does with his friend. And then they just like see this giant triangle and then they go to sleep. Yeah. And they lay down and go to sleep. And the next thing they know, they're waking up their tent. There's what they called uh, kids. Why are those children hanging out outside of this? So they're still in that apathetic state, but they also uh, recognize that something's different. Something's weird. Mm-hmm. And and who knows how many hours later in their frame of reference. Yeah. Yeah, because what I think of the apathy is like, you know, when somebody has an experience and they don't talk about it for years and then suddenly they'll remember it somehow. Or it was a group and somebody in the group will remember. I had it well, happen when I was, I could have taken a picture of something I saw floating over the, near the Santa Barbara airport, which completely confused me. So you're talking about as a real-time thing, though, Yeah, right? as a real-time thing, yes. Okay. And then I, I just I left. Just I said, I got to like go it. home, and I left. I didn't, yeah, go, yeah, yeah. I didn't approach well, it. I didn't take a picture. I just you left. Know, and that's perfect. Like, that might explain what, what people have been saying for decades. Like, well, we have all these cameras. We have cell phones in our pockets now that take pictures. Why aren't there? And, and maybe that happens to a lot of people in the same way that it happens to abductees. Maybe they can just say... Nothing to see here. Move along, folks. Yeah, could be that. And you had that experience. Do you do you attribute that to an actual UFO sighting? Like you remember the UFO sighting? Yeah. And you're like, why the fuck didn't I take a picture? Yeah, I just left. I thought, well, I got to go home, and I left. Well, it was a it was a crappy little flip phone that all you would have gotten was a little blob on it. But Doesn't I could have matter. driven there you in five minutes. You weren't thinking about the quality of your phone at the no. moment, I'm sure. No, and I could have driven there in five minutes, and I didn't. To where it was. Interesting. I don't know why I did that. I don't know if it's because, because, you know, from my point of view at the time, at least I just thought after it happened, I thought, why didn't I go? So what I thought was, well, maybe my brain just couldn't handle it and decided it didn't want to handle it. And I left. Yeah, that's possible, too. That's definitely a valid theory. And this wasn't that long ago. Ontological shock, basically. And this wasn't that long ago. This was like. While I was still writing um, uh, Euphomistic in the in like 2009 or something. Oh yeah, your brain could handle that, brother. Yeah, it could have, but it didn't. Have I just left. <laughs> That's yeah, that is interesting. It's good to self-reflect on those things. So I have no idea, but yeah, I mean, the 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 interest in the subject, I think. Encompasses, encompasses so many things and most of them I don't think we're aware of and I don't think we ever will be aware of but the upshot of it is I think at some point we will yeah. be if they are us yeah but definitely not for a while and there'll there'll probably be uh like a sliding scale of that mm-hmm. where we can obviously recognize ourselves and the ones that are so similar to ourselves but then even if they're working together on the same ships or from what, what I've started to think is there's a point in time. And I don't think it's too far from where we are in time where they launch from like Mm. how people come together at CERN to work on particle physics and stuff. I wonder if maybe there's a point in our near future where it's just the stopping point right before we understand who they are, Mm -hmm. where they can launch from because it's closer to these different times. Yeah, so it's less less really energy and all that, yeah. Yeah, so the greys just have a base, like, 
wherever on the backside of the moon or whatever. And in our time or close to our time where they can launch from and use less energy and, and not have to uh, send everybody back through like 70,000 years, they can come from here and then use that to dip back 40 or 50,000 years. But then I start to think about uh, yeah, the, the human Three billion years of, of boredom, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine humans living for three billion years? Yeah. No, I mean, going back then, it's like, what do we want to look at the formation of the planet for? Or what do we want to look at, you know, 50 centuries of rain for? You know, <laughs> maybe go back when there's, um, you know, diatoms or something in the in the in the seas and see what the genetic makeup yeah. of those are. And, you know, if we evolved to the point where we are just that pulsating beam of light, light yeah, transcends everything. Photons yeah. are timeless. Light is timeless. Uh, one other thing that I think is relevant to that is how we do archaeology, because we find things that are more proximate to us because sampling error dictates that they're going to be found more often than not. Mm -hmm. You drop a bunch of shit in your house, you're going to find that more quickly than a bunch of things that were dropped by somebody that lived in that same space a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago or 3000 years ago, or even someone that was there two days before and somebody picked it up. You just, you see more things in proximity to you in both space and time. So, Based on the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation Breeze study, they do show that most people see people just like us. Yep. Humans. And that makes sense in that same sort of archaeological context where you would expect to see people, if we're talking about time, this timescape, you expect to see people that came from a time closer to years. And I oftentimes, I don't oftentimes, I just started making this analogy about uh, a month ago, where you you would expect to see people that live in your city more than someone that lives in Mozambique, or yeah, and you would New also ex- Zealand. You would also expect to be more connected to the kind of people they are and what their their civilization is and their level of intelligence and all that by being closer in time as well. Absolutely. Um, And so when you see people from Mozambique or New Zealand, you're like, oh, yeah, I know you exist. So cool. We don't necessarily think future people exist or we don't expect to see them. Mm -hmm. But when we do, I think that helps uh, us understand how we still ascribe them in the context of extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings or something else. And and there could be an interdimensional aspect to their traveling to our times as well. But, but seeing those people who are just slightly different in this, even if they're the exact same people, even if you dress them in like the most cliche Stafford jacket, Stafford tie, <laughs> Stafford dress shirt and some slacks from Gap or whatever, they would still feel different if they walked out of a flying saucer. You right. would instantly ascribe them to something very different, even if they look exactly like you and they're wearing all the cliche shit from, I guess, the 1990s is what I'm describing. <laughs> um, but, but we still do that. We still do that. And you would expect that, too, if they're coming back from these points 
in our relatively near-term future. But once we start to get farther out, archaeologically speaking, to like, say, 40, 50,000 years of these grays, we expect to see them less often simply because we're a tiny blip on their huge span of time. Whereas ones closer to us, we would see moving through time. And, and obviously they're not studying us. They have historic records unless something really uh, devastating happens. They still have historic records of what happens between now and then. I think it's more about monitoring aspects of the earth and ecological and environmental things for them, uh, which does seem to be important too. Well, you and did I'm glad also that talk you about the show Radio Rambloso because I'm rambling like a mofo <laughs> right now, and I apologize for that. But it's okay. I'm it's hoping I'm making rambling. my point to some extent, and I hope there was a point to be made in the first place. There was a point made throughout this entire thing, which is th- this is a book that people should read and consider that an extra tempest- tempestral hypothesis is viable. It, it and it. Um, ticks a lot of boxes in uh, observed uh, encounters. Extraterrestrial was already conventional, was understood. Uh, I forgot that we don't all speak Latin, so you can't just sub out the middle part like that and expect it to be understood as such. But No, I mean... Um, the, the, oh, what's the funny is we're point. talking about this, and that was a question you tried to ask me like an hour and a half ago, is what does extraterrestrial well, mean? Well, we do know what it means. Talk we, about circling back. Yeah, well, we, we, we went, I asked it, and you, I was like, I think people here know what you mean by that. And you said, yeah, they do, move on. <laughs> that's all, you know, yeah, that's 90. I think 90 you did ask it, you're right, but I don't think we really talked about it. Uh, we talked about it in the way we talked about the nature of time and the nature yes. of what something that would could transcend time or right. travel backwards but not a lexicon time thing. We didn't break down the word. Extra-tempestrial, outside of time, dweller. Dweller. Was that what it meant? I should add dweller to that, too. Yeah, I like that. You know, you re, you uh, quoted that scene from Repo Man, which I totally forgot about. It would have been so obvious, and I love that movie. <laughs> that was probably one of the most told-to-me things after my book came out than anything else. Yeah. Was, oh, my God, have you seen Repo Man? Remember that scene in Repo Man? Yeah. I, I, had, I had to put that in as an example of someone or something. And, and of course, I just... As some asshole, I just cited the actors, not the writer. Yeah, I, I think uh, Alex. I, I think Alex Cox did actually write it. I'm pretty sure. Maybe not. Yeah, and I would like to add to the record the song I just sent you by Deluxe D E space L U X called "Oh Man, the Future." The book is The Extra Tempestrial Model, and people can get it where? Just on Amazon or on your site, or what's the best place? At your house. Okay. Uh, I, put, I sent all my copies to your house. They okay. have to go there. Then I'll leave my address here for everybody. To come well, just put up. them in your mailbox, and if they, want, if they want one, they can pick it up. Okay. Well, we'll do it that way. Signed copies, too. Signed by Greg Bishop on behalf of uh, Mike. <laughs> Mike Masters. I just, it'll be like uh, Dolly <laughs> signing 400 blank prints, and then people print on uh, print the uh, the uh, uh, limited editions on them. Sort of like that. 
sort of like that. But these will be genuine. I'm going to telepathically imprint my brain on yours while you have that pen in hand and remote view your pen. I will be in an open... um, Sign them myself. So... I'll be in an open, uh, open-minded. Uh, yeah, I mean, we channeling. do this all the time. We yeah. watch Mash together, and you yeah. just open your eyes and your mind, and I watch through your eyeballs, and okay. it's fun. We do it all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk soon. And here's Deluxe. Thank you. 